All right, what's up? Uh, yeah, coming in hot. It's all right. My name's Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the staff members here. It's been too long since I spoke, so I'm fired up. So let's get right into this thing. Let's do this. Okay, here's where I'm going with this sermon. I'm going to tell you right off the bat. I'm going to attempt to convince you to live the most awesome life that you possibly could imagine. That's what I'm after. Okay, so, so church has a lot of shoulds. Uh, like, you should eat broccoli. Nobody wants to. You should. Screw that. I'm not interested in shoulds tonight. I want some get-tos. I want some, like, how can life be amazing? And, and here's what I want to convince you of, is that the Bible actually talks about that life, and it offers you a direct pathway right to it. Like everything that you've ever wanted in life, Christianity not only has something to say about it, but it's actually the means by which you can get there. Now, it's a little bit different means than you might expect. It's a little bit different means from some of the stuff maybe you've heard from other churches, but we're jumping into to Corinthians tonight. We're just going to walk through uh, some highlights of First and Second Corinthians over the next several weeks and we're in 1 Corinthians 1. If you want to open up uh, to your Bible on your app or a, a Bible, whatever, it'd be awesome if you followed along. So it's not a super creative title. We're just calling it Corinthians. Okay, but the subtitle in my head for 1 Corinthians 1 tonight is how to live a baller life. All right? That's, that's what I'm thinking about. But in order to do that, we've got to figure out what a good life is. And I think that we all assume that we actually know that when what the Bible says is that actually very few of us know what a great life is. So I was reading a book this week, started, and it opened up with this story about this pilot that was flying through some dense fog, and she was flying at a really fast pace, and she was nervous because she couldn't see anything, she couldn't see the horizon, she didn't know where she was, and so she decided to, to pull up to get out of the fog, and so as she started to go at a steady incline, she ran into the ground and crashed because in the middle of the fog, She'd gotten so disoriented that she was actually flying upside down and she didn't know it. Apparently that can happen. When you, when you don't see the horizon, when you're in the fog, you can get flipped upside down and not even know it. And you can think up is down and down is up. And this is what the Bible would say about your life, about all of us as human beings, about my life, that our natural default is to think that up, and, up is down and down is up morally that actually what you think is the good life and what will be fun and what will be beneficial for you is often the exact opposite of what actually is good and what actually is awesome and what actually is fun. Where I'm getting that from 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Okay, so you've got that, that first part, folly. That's just a fancy way of saying like, dumb. The, the message of Jesus seems dumb to a lot of people, in particular people who aren't Christians, but what that message actually is, is the very power of God. It seems like a bad idea, but it's actually an amazing idea. So we'll get back to that, but I want to talk first about what it means that the message of the cross is the power of God. So here's what it means is the message of, of the cross, the thing that Isaac just talked about before that song, that basic message is the thing by which you can access eternal life. But here's the thing. 
as I say that, my guess is the majority of you in this room just jump to some odd conclusions that Jesus himself wouldn't have jumped to because of the way that Western Christianity has talked about this idea. So here's what I mean by that. When we think of eternal life, right? Maybe some of you have heard John 3.16, that God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that those who believe him may not perish but have eternal life. When you hear that, you think that that's talking about something that's gonna happen in the future, right? It's essentially a get out of jail free card that you can be forgiven of your sins and you can live your life as normal. And then in the future, you can access heaven with God and all that good stuff. Now that is true, but it's definitely not all that's true. And I don't even think it's primarily what he means by eternal life. Because I'm excited about heaven. I'm excited about having hope. I believe that stuff. It's, it's like what my life is founded on. I'm not just talking about it. I actually, I think it matters. I believe it. It's great. But what about my life right now? Like that's not very compelling for how to live right now. But I think this is what Jesus was saying when he came to earth is you can access eternal life, not just in the future, but you can access it right now. And the way you can do that is by living out the teachings that he talked about. In other words, Jesus is God himself who knows what's good for you. Like he's the engineer that created the complex machine that is the human soul. And he knows how to run the thing. And he showed up and he said, hey, the lives that you guys are living suck. And you've got an opportunity for a better life if you would just hear me out on this stuff. I actually know what's best. I designed you and I want what's best for you. I want you to have a better life. And so the stuff that he talks about, that he teaches, is him offering us good news about how we can live different lives right now, that we can have eternity right now. So in that same book that I was, I was talking about, there was another analogy that he threw out that was, that was really helpful for me when he was talking about this. And, and this is when I figured out that this dude that wrote this book was pretty old, because the analogy is about how he didn't have electricity when he was a kid, so he grew up in rural Missouri. They didn't have electricity, but he remembers when he was younger, the day that the electric company got some electric lines out to their neighborhood. And so there was this news spreading around their neighborhood that electricity had come. And he called it the gospel of electricity because the term gospel just means good news. And so the good news that electricity had come was spreading all around the neighborhood. And, and because of that good news, people's lives started to change, right? So they used to have literal ice boxes, which were boxes full of ice. And that was the way that they tried to keep stuff cold. But they got rid of those and they bought refrigerators and freezers. They bought lamps so that they could actually stay up at night and have some light and live like a normal human instead of everything shutting down as soon as it, it got dark. The news changed the way that they lived for the better. But what he said is, is that there were some people that in theory believed in electricity. They weren't denying the existence of electricity, but they just didn't want it. Either because they thought it was too expensive or because they somehow convinced themselves that it wouldn't actually give them a better life. And so those people had denied the good news message of electricity because they weren't actually accessing a better life because of it. This is what I'm saying. You can believe in God in theory. You can believe that Jesus existed and that he said the stuff that he said and not be a Christian. Because if you believe in theory that Jesus existed, but you're not accessing all of the things that he taught you about what it means to live life with him, then you're not actually experiencing eternal life. 
You don't actually know him. There's more out there for you. There's a better life. But here's the thing. Anyone who doesn't have access to that will think that it's a really bad, really dumb idea. Right? That's the whole, they think it's the power of God is foolishness. So have you ever felt a little embarrassed that you're a Christian or that you're considering Christianity? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at Dogwood and it was like totally full. And so I had to do the socially awkward thing of sitting right next to a stranger and I was feeling uncomfortable and I'm getting all my stuff out, right? And I go to get my Bible out and I didn't really even notice that I was doing it, but I kind of put it upside down so that the person next to me couldn't really tell that it was a Bible. And I put another book on top of it. And then I had this moment where I'm like, what the heck? Like, I'm a pastor. What am I doing? Like, I, I talk about this thing for a living. Why am I? But I, I feel this weirdness every once in a while where I think people have this perception of what Christianity is, uh, this kind of this mean, bigoted, restricted thing that I don't actually believe about Christianity and I'm afraid that they're gonna associate me with that and that they're gonna think that I'm an idiot because of that. And so this is what I'm saying. If you claim Christ, people that don't know Christ will think that it's foolish. Either they will think it's intellectually stupid or they will think it's foolish in the sense of why would anyone live their life like that? Why would anyone give up sin, the stuff that you could live for, in order to follow Jesus? But the reason why they will think that is because they haven't experienced what it's like to live with electricity. They're still living in the dark, and they don't know how good the light is. Now, hear me on this. I don't mean that as kind of an exclusive statement. So if you're not a Christian and you're here, by the way, it's awesome you're here and you have access to all of this. It's not like an insider thing. You have access to this too. There's just people that haven't realized how good this life is. And the reason they think that it's dumb is because they don't know how awesome the teachings of Jesus are. And I want to show them how good it is to follow Jesus with the way that I live. I do not want to be a crabby, upset Christian that hates my life. I want to act like this is actually good news. I want to believe that it's actually good news. I want my life to be better because I know Jesus. I don't want to just have some theoretical connection with Jesus that doesn't actually change who I am. What's the use of that? I want this to be real in my life and I want people to see it. So this is what I'm saying. There's two basic ways that you can live. Two basic claims about what the good life is and what would be a good life for you to live and what would be fun. The first one is what the Bible calls the wisdom of the world. And this is what our culture is telling you. This is what your professors will tell you as you go to class. This is what your friends are going to think when they think it's weird that you're a Christian. That's the wisdom of the world. But there's a second way. There's a second path and it's the wisdom or the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, here's the thing, is the wisdom of the world can seem awesome and fun, but it actually is awful. And the wisdom of Jesus at times can seem restrictive and difficult, but actually is amazing. And so, so this is what I want to do for the rest of the time. I want to look at those two things, and I want to compare and contrast them, and I want to show you why the way of Jesus is better than the wisdom of the world. But first, let me give you just a, a little bit of background on the book of Corinthians, um, because we're going to be in this, these couple books for a while, 
and I want you to know like the basic information. So, so Corinth is a, a port city. It's a beautiful city. I've actually got to, to walk through Corinth. It's a, it's a modern day metropolis and it was a metropolis back then. It was a really big city because it was a port city. And so because it was a port city, a bunch of people traveled to it. It was a really popular destination for people to go and start up businesses and stuff like that. It was where people went to make money and have a career. It was a really diverse city. People from all over the place traveled to Corinth to to do business and to purchase things and, and to head out to their next destination. It wasn't that far from Athens. And so it's this really big, diverse city with a lot going on in it. Not that different from Minneapolis. Here's the other thing about Corinth. It was wild. Okay, the, the modern day equivalent of Corinth is like Las Vegas. And there actually used to be an ancient expression where they would drop the name Corinthian and it was like the same thing as saying what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like the Corinthians were, were nuts and they were known for that. Like it was the city that you went to to pursue kind of a, a, a sinful, crazy life. That's what the Corinthians were known for. And this church, Paul, the guy that wrote this letter, started this church and it's not a very old church. It's like, about five years old. So the people that Paul is talking to, okay, these aren't like the homeschool co-op kids. No offense, kind of, maybe be a little offended, but a lot of you have grown out of it. You've done a great job. Okay. So these, these aren't, I love you, Josh. Um, these aren't the, the homeschool co-op kids. These are the dudes that have rolled straight out of the bars and, and they don't have a clue what Christianity is about, and they're still living the exact same way that they used to live, but they also think that Jesus is awesome, and they're trying to figure out how to live with him, right? Which has a lot of similarity to us, right? Like, we live in this diverse metropolis with a lot going around around us, and there's a lot of wildness going on on this campus, and a lot of you haven't been around Christianity for a long time. You just rolled in, you're new to this thing, and you're trying to figure out what it means to live for Christ. Okay. So let's get back to kind of this idea. What is this wisdom of the world versus the power of God? Okay, so let me give you a few things that is the wisdom of the world or stuff that you will hear or tend to believe because you live in this culture. And then I want to tell you what Jesus has to say about it. Okay, the first one is this. Wisdom of the world. Make money and be successful and you'll be happy. Make money, be successful, and you'll be happy. And you could have internal motivation for that. What I mean is you could be the one that's driving that and think that that's what's going to make you happy. Or you could have external motivation. You could have other people in your life that are expecting you to be something, and you feel the pressure to be something. So I started reading this book by a guy named Tim Ferriss. He wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, if any of you have heard of it. He's not a a Christian guy, but one of the the things that that I love about his observation is he's figured out how stupid our, like, economic system is. That not just as a whole, but our individual economic system. So, So what I mean by that is he points out that the majority of people will spend your life working at a job that you hate through the best years of your life to save for retirement that you may or may not make it to. And even if you do, it likely will be a reduction in your standard of living, not a step up. And he points out how dumb it is to throw away the best years of your life to try and save for some future awesome reality when you're going to be rich and you're going to live it up when you don't even know if you're going to make it there. And I love that he points that out. And as he's making that point, he talks about this dude that he met on a plane from Las Vegas, actually. 
And this guy had, had hit it big. He was a total success. He owned all of these gas stations somewhere in California, and, and he was super rich. And they were flying back from Las Vegas, and he started talking to, to this dude because his buddies were passed out drunk in the seats next to him, and he started talking to him about his life. And he found out that this guy was like living the dream. He had, he had money, he had power, he had a, a fun life, he had everything that he wanted, and he hated his life. This is a, a, a quote from Tim Ferriss about this guy. He explained that he had spent more than 30 years with people he didn't like to buy things he didn't need. Life had become a succession of trophy wives. He was unlucky number three. Expensive cars and other empty bragging rights. Mark was one of the living dead. So here's what this guy found out is that living selfishly isn't actually fun, but it's empty. That you can live it up, you can do whatever you want, but if there's not purpose and meaning to your life, it stops being fun really quick. That he got everything that culture will tell you that you should want, everything that you've dreamed about, and it wasn't enough for him, and not only was it not enough, but he hated his life. And, and this is what he kept thinking, is he would make a little bit of money and it wouldn't make him happy. And then he would just think, you know what, if I could just get a little bit more, then I'd be happy. And then he'd make a little bit more and then he'd think the same thing. And it became this cycle in his life till he had an unbelievable amount of money. So much so that what he told Tim Ferriss, the guy that wrote this book, is that over the last weekend in Vegas, he had lost a million dollars which is pretty rough to lose a million dollars, but also kind of baller to have a million dollars to lose, right? The dude clearly had done well. But what was he doing? He was throwing money at anything that he could imagine, trying to find something, trying to wake up, trying to feel alive. And even losing a million dollars couldn't make him feel alive. Gaining a million dollars couldn't make him feel alive because he didn't have purpose in his life. That's the wisdom of the world. Chase stuff that's empty and just keep chasing it, hoping that the next time it'll satisfy you. Here's the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus talked to this guy called the rich young ruler. And so here was the context of this guy. Think about those statements. So he was a young guy that was uber successful. So he was doing well in life. He was rich. He had pretty much everything that he wanted. He was a ruler, so he had power and he had influence. And what you find out about this guy is he was actually really good too. Usually people that have that stuff, they're not always good people as well, but this guy was actually a really good person. So he had everything, but he comes out looking for Jesus. Why? Because even though he had everything, there was still something missing in his life and he was trying to find the answer. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, hey, what am I missing? Can you help me out? In Mark 10, 21, this is what Jesus said. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Okay, that seems like a pretty brutal statement, right? Sell everything you have. But this is what I want you to see. Jesus was offering him something better than what he had in money. Jesus was saying, hey, if living for money isn't satisfying you, why don't you live for something that matters instead of living for yourself? And so find somebody that needs that more than you and go help them out. Give your money to the poor and you'll have significance and meaning in life. 
You'll, you'll start to live the selfless life that I created you to live. And hey, if you're worried about all that money that you're going to lose, don't worry. You'll be with me in heaven forever where you'll have treasure beyond anything that you could imagine that will dwarf anything that you had in this life and you'll have me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying you can have both. You can have meaning now and you can have riches in eternity forever. And he offers this guy that life and, and it was good news about how this dude could live and he completely misses it because all he can focus on is what he has to give up and he hears good news as bad news because he misses what Jesus is offering him. Okay, this is what I'm saying. Chasing money and, and success and everything that this world can offer you. You've maybe heard before that that's bad. You should be a generous person. Okay, that, that's maybe true, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying chasing money is dumb because it's not as good of a life as you could live if you would give it up for something that matters. And I'm not saying you can't have any money. Obviously, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it can't be the centerpiece of your life. It can't be the primary care of your life. So I know a, a professor who is doing pretty well, making a good amount of money, who lives in a really modest, small house. And they, him and his wife have one car, and so he rides his bike to work every day, including in the middle of winter. And he doesn't have any stories about like all the traveling and stuff like that that he's done because they live a pretty modest simple life. Here's why. is because he gives away 50% of his income. 50%. And you know what? He's one of the happiest, most content people that I know. He's experienced the life of generosity and he never goes back because he's found a better life. Okay, number two, wisdom of the world. Here's what else you'll hear. Trust your instincts about what's best for you. Trust your instincts about what's best for you. So this is the idea that you have within yourself the ability to make good moral decisions that will benefit your life. Or, or another way to put that is that nobody knows better than you what is best for you. So when I was thinking about this, I thought about a story because I am a teller of stories. That's who I am. So I forget if I've told this one here or not. Um, but I had a buddy named Jace who was my roommate in college. And Jace was a ridiculous human being in all of the best senses of the word. Like, you just never knew what that dude was going to do, and it made life interesting, right? And just, just for a little context, I, was, I had two other roommates, and I was, like, by a good amount, the smallest one in the room. Okay, so Jace is, like, 6'5", 300 pounds. That'll come into context later in the story. So one night, some dude decides that it's a good idea to just pull the fire alarm repeatedly in our dorms. And every single time our CAs are doing their jobs, our CAs are like, hey, you got to get out of the dorms. We got to evac the whole. So it's two in the morning. I'm evacing my dorm. We're all standing outside for no reason. We all know the dude that's pulling the fire alarm, right? So we get in the third time that this has happened. And Jace looks at me and he goes, so help me if this happens again. I'm going to lose it. And I'm now thinking, I really hope somebody pulls that fire alarm because I want to see what goes down, right? And lucky for me, somebody did pull the fire alarm. And Jace, in one motion, launches out of bed, takes off all of his clothes, and runs up and down the hallway naked, screaming, fire! <laughs> and so the dudes that are already ticked off about life roll out of their rooms and just go, and go, nope, it's over, and just walk back in. He literally shut down, like, the whole fire drill. Okay. 
Here's the problem with that story. Well, one is the imagery, right? <clears throat> Second problem with that story is that none of it actually happened. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's a real bummer. Now, let me clarify something before you turn on me. I, I'm not just making it up to like do this sermon illustration. I actually thought that happened for like eight years of my life. And you're like, how does that happen? I have no idea. I think maybe I dreamed it and I thought it was real. So I've genuinely thought this was real. And so I've like told people this story. I've said it in messages. Like I think I've lied in sermons. And then finally one of my friends called me out and he's like, dude, I don't think that happens. That doesn't sound like Jace. And so I went up to Jace convinced. Why is there, what is that? Um, so I go up to Jace convinced that this was real life and I'm making my kid, like you remember when you ran around naked down the hallway, right? And he's like, no, what? So I still to this day have no idea how I managed to make, I still remember like feeling the things that I felt. I think it was a dream, I don't know. Okay, here's my point. You can be completely convinced that something's true that's 100% false. Okay, they've like actually done studies on this. I think I'm very abnormal in this, but they've done studies on this where memory is like super faulty. People invent details and they make stuff up. It's not trustworthy. Your mind is like not actually trustworthy. Okay, the same thing is actually true with morality and spirituality is you can be absolutely convinced that something is true that's completely false. And so what that means is, is you can be absolutely convinced that something is good and right and true. And the only way to think about it, but actually the direct opposite thing is true. And so what will happen is you'll be convinced in your own life that things are true and good and you'll believe them, but they will eventually come into conflict with what the Bible has to say about those things. And the question is, what will you do when those two things come into conflict? Here's what our culture will tell you, is that you should trust your instincts, you should believe what's in your heart, you should listen to your own morality. But listen to what God has to say about that. So the context for this 1 Corinthians verse is Isaiah 29. And, uh, and he actually quotes Isaiah 29, and then the context a little bit further down, Isaiah 29, 16 says this, shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Let that last line sink in. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. This is what this is saying, is that you are a work of art and God is the artist. God formed you. You're, you're his. He, he made you. And he knows what's best for you. And, and when you come into conflict with what he says is good about the world and you tend to trust yourself and question him, you're looking at the one who made you and saying, yeah, God, you just don't really get it. You just, you don't understand. Like, I know you talk about morality, but I actually know morality. What, what you're saying is, God, I, you, you, and when you're doubting his goodness, when you see stuff in the Bible that's hard for you to believe about how this world operates and how God operates with salvation, when you doubt that stuff, what you're saying is, God, I really get love. I don't know if you do. He invented love. He's the source of love. His son came down in the greatest expression of love in history. Why don't we question ourselves and our own motives instead of questioning him? God formed you, he knows you, trust him. 
So one of the, the examples I have of this that I wanted to, to share, which this is kind of a simple example. You maybe heard me talk about something like this in the past, but don't tune it out because I think it's actually pretty important. So my son Graham is 10 months old. If you guys know me, you're like, he almost got through a sermon without talking about Graham. Nope, talking. Um, he's about 10 months old and he's starting to, to understand what stuff means. So he understands now when I say no. And so this is what happens is Graham will start walking towards a uh, extension cord and will want to eat it. And I will say, Graham, no. And luckily he stops, but then he, he turns back at me and just screams and pounds on the ground, right? So it's like, th this is the consistent thing in my life. Hey, Graham, uh, no, don't crawl down the stairs. Ticked off. Graham, don't take dirt from our plant, rub it on your face and then eat it. Angry, right? Here's the deal. Graham understands what the word no means, and he doesn't understand it. So he gets that the word no means stop that, but he doesn't understand my intentions behind it, and so he gets ticked off. Because from his perspective, I'm just a fun hater. I'm just not letting him do something that's good for him, and he doesn't understand that when I tell him no, it's because I want what's good for him. It's not that I don't love him, it's actually because of my love. He just doesn't have the perspective for that. This is what we're like when we want to run to our own sin, to our own morality, to our own views of the world. We're eating dirt and God's like, hey, knock it off. And we're like, you suck. You're a fun hater. Why won't you let me have freedom? You're restrictive. No, he loves you. He wants a good life for you. Third perspective. Third piece of wisdom from the world. You have to succeed. You can't fail. Let's talk grades. I, I don't have to get grades anymore, so I know that I have like a nice little perspective on this. You guys are hilarious with how much you freak out about grades. I mean, I love you, and I've been there, okay? I freaked out about grades too, but you guys like lose your minds. You get this like crazy look in your eyes, and it's, it's not, okay, why? Why, why, are you, why are you freaking out about grades? Some of you will sacrifice four years of your life, and you'll essentially hate it for four or five victory lap years of your life, <laughs> Right? You, you'll sacrifice your friendships. You'll sacrifice your relationships. You'll, you'll sacrifice your family. You'll, you'll live in a constant state of stress and anxiety. You will push your emotional, spiritual, and physical health to the brink. For what? Some lines on a piece of paper. Like you've got, you right now have a vertical line with two of these little loops. It's called a B. And you want one of these lines, two of these lines at the side, and one through the middle. Why? Well, because I've always had a good GPA and I got to keep up my GPA. Why? Well, because, you know, I'm here and I got to work hard for my career. My parents pay for me to be here and it's important. Oh, yeah, it's totally important. You should work hard. You should honor Jesus in your studies. You should do all that stuff. But why do you have to get a good grade? Well, because I've always gotten a good grade. Why? Because I have to get a job. Yeah, you know that employers don't actually care about your GPA. Like maybe one will ask you about your GPA. If you've got good interviewing skills, it is not going to matter. That thing you've worked for your whole life will not matter. Why? It's just marks on a piece of paper, but it means something more to you. Here's what it means. It means that you're worth something. Right? You might as well wear a name tag that says Jordan, and then behind it, it says A, which means I'm a success, I'm valuable, I'm important. Or Jordan, C, I kind of suck, I'm a little ashamed, I don't like who I am. 
It's, it's an identity statement because we're looking for something that signifies that we're successful, that we're worth something. But what if the way to be successful in life isn't to fight for everything you've got for success, but actually to embrace weakness? Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Okay, we'll get to that chosen of the weak to shame the strong. But did you notice how that started? Paul's like a little rough here. This is what he says to the Corinthians. Hey, you guys aren't very wise. You're not very powerful. You're not of noble birth. Like he's kind of like, you guys are just sort of average. All right, so, so let's talk. <laughs> just, just trust me, I love you. Um, your mom said you're special. You're, you're, you're not. Like, just, just statistically, even if you're really good at what you do, there's other people that are better at it. You're, you're probably more special than I am. You're probably like higher on the curve, but still in general, you're still like in this category of average. You grew up hearing that you could do whatever you want in life. You, you, you can't. I grew up thinking that I was going to be a professional baseball player. But then I figured out that I can't really catch a pop fly and I run like a turtle. It's just not going to happen, right? Like you realistically can't do whatever you want. And let's just say in theory that you're like the most amazing person on the planet and you get whatever you want. It's incredibly likely that your life will still suck because the, the, the best the most industrialized, the richest countries in the world with the access to the most stuff are actually the countries with the highest rates of mental health issues, depression, and suicide. Okay, we good? Should I, should I go? No, like stick with me, okay? Here's what I'm saying. Why is that so hard for you to hear? Why do you cringe when I say that, that you're maybe a normal human being? It's because for your entire life, you have thought that in order to be something in this world, that in order to matter to someone, in order to validate your existence as a human being, that you had to succeed, that you had to be impressive, that you had to be better. The reason why that's so hard for us is because all of us are deeply insecure we don't know what we're actually worth and we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, right? Or maybe you're proud and that's insecurity too because you've got to have other people prop you up to demonstrate that you're actually as good as you're saying you are. And so here's the solution from the world. Here's what they will say will solve your problem is that you got to succeed, you got to prove yourself, you got to get yourself some compliments, you got to get other people to sort of prop you up and tell you you're amazing. But the problem with that is that you'll always have the question in the back of your mind, am I good enough? Is it actually enough? Do people actually love me? And in fact, that strategy will probably make the problem worse because you've got this little ego monster in your soul and all you're doing with all those compliments is feeding it. And it's just going to get bigger and hungrier. And it's going to be a relentless cycle. Here's the wisdom of Jesus. Embrace your weakness and God will make you strong. 
Listen to this, verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God intentionally chose weak people because he loves people, regardless of how well they've performed, and he wants to be strong through them. And you trying to be strong actually can become a barrier to your relationship with God. Here's what I want you to hear from me. You can fail. You really can. In fact, all of us have spiritually failed. We haven't been what we were supposed to be. And so here's what that means is that every single one of us in this room, including myself, is a failure. Let that sit for a second, but again, stick with me. The day that I owned that was one of the best days of my life. Here's why. It's because I had spent my life terrified of failing, thinking that if I failed, no one would love me, no one would care about me, I would have no status and no importance in the world. And so I spent my whole life running and chasing success, and it was killing me, and it was exhausting. And the day that I just admitted, man, I'm a normal, imperfect human being. I've failed at some stuff. Here's what I found out, is that Jesus still loves me. And in fact, the people in my life still love me and that my life didn't suddenly crumble because I had messed something up because it wasn't about how I could perform the whole time. It was about who I am and who I am is a child of God. I'm made in his image. He loves me. He delights in me and that matters. And that's my primary identity, not that I can succeed. Let me end on this. Back to the start of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Did you catch what Paul just called them? He called them saints. The Corinthian church was so screwed up. There was a dude in the church that was sleeping with his mother-in-law. There's people getting hammed on communion wine. Like actually, the people in the front line were drinking all the wine and getting drunk, and the people in the back of the line didn't get any of it. These people were messed up. So if you saw the church of Corinth, the thing that you would say about them is, man, they're screwed up. They're sinners. The thing that they were probably saying about them in their conscience and in guilt was, man, I'm screwed up. I'm a sinner. And this is what God, the God of the universe says about them. You are a saint. What do you think of when you think saint? Maybe something weird and pseudo-spiritual, maybe just like a really good person like Mother Teresa or something like that. Either way, you think about a person who's set apart in their goodness. God says that's you. Who are the people in your life that are calling out sinner over your life? Maybe it's your family who hates that you're a Christian and their version of sin is Christianity. Or maybe it's judgmental religious Christians who are kind of pushing you out of the group. Or maybe it's yourself. You feel guilt, you feel shame, you feel discouragement, you feel frustration about how you're living. This is what God calls out over you, saint. That's the wisdom of God, is even though you're screwed up, he treats you like you're perfect because of Christ. So the wisdom of God, a foolish message that takes weak people and makes them strong in Christ. That's the best stinking life you ever could live. Trusting him and following him is the best life you ever could live. Let me pray. Jesus, help us to believe that's true. Help us to, to believe that following you is the best life and that chasing stuff that this world offers us won't actually satisfy us. Help us to, 
to turn from stuff that you told us to, to turn from and to see how good it is to follow you. God, I, I pray for the people here that are kind of freaked out about Christianity or, or unsure, kind of on the fence. Help them to see that you want relationship with them, that um, you want to give them the life that, that they've wanted, but it comes through following you and not through anything else. And through people that are discouraged or feel like they're caught in sin, help them to know that you're calling out saint over their life, that you've forgiven them, you don't hold their sins against them. And we're excited to worship you now together, Jesus. Amen.